Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I'm Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. 2021 is an important recognition year for Justice Jackson, for international humanitarian law, and for the Jackson Center itself. And during the course of this year, we will be celebrating the 80th anniversary of Justice Jackson's appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court, the completion of the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials and the birth of international humanitarian law, and the 20th anniversary of the Jackson Center. And all of those milestones and our planning to commemorate or celebrate them had us looking to the past uh, to see how far we, the law, and the world have come but we know we cannot rest on our laurels. And so it also had us looking to the future and to try and determine where are we trying to go and how do we get there? And that's a little bit of the story of how we got to our programming theme for 2021, the work left to do. During this year, we are convening conversations about democracy, US and global institutions, human rights and equity. We have structured our bi-monthly teas a little bit differently this year. Each month has a particular focus. And in June, we are looking at education justice and equity gaps in education. And the first tea each month, which this is, is designed to provide you with an understanding of the work left to do to achieve equity or to make progress in this area with a, usually a specific focus on the law itself. And the second tea each month is geared to showcase those actively doing the work to close this gap. And in today's tea, we get a little bit of both, which is always nice. So we hope each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family and friends and your colleagues and to seek out ways to make change in your communities. So today I am excited to be in conversation with David Shiara, who has served as the Executive Director of the Education Law Center since 1996. The Education Law Center was founded in 1973 and serves as the leading voice for New Jersey's public school children and has become one of the most effective advocates for educational opportunity and educational justice in the United States. The Education Law Center also promotes educational equity through coalition building, litigation support, policy development, communications, research in New Jersey and other states and at the federal level. And David, I'm so thrilled you could join me for tea today. Well, Kristen, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I like to start each of these teas with a foundational question. And I think for the month of June, the question that obviously makes sense is when we're talking about education and equity or education justice, what do we mean by that? What is, what is your definition of that? So um, I think that the, the, 
our focus at the Education Law Center is, has been on our core mission, which is ensuring all children um, access opportunities and the resources needed they needed to succeed in school and succeed in life. So I think if we're talking about educational equity and justice, it really relates to all children and all means all. And the real focus on the work of equity and justice and, in education um, has to do with the significant numbers of uh, children in our country and in our states that are not um, being afforded that, that opportunity. And those sort of fall into some obvious groups and um, also are spatially set apart. So it's low income children, children from poor backgrounds, from high, children in high poverty neighborhoods, children living in um, uh, historically underserved communities. Uh, it also includes students with disabilities, students who need to learn English in school, homeless students, which is a big issue obviously in New York City and in other, in other cities, uh, students in foster care and so forth and so on. So when we think about educational justice, really we have to think about how do we build strong uh, educational systems that are well-resourced to deliver high quality education to all of those children, which is a huge and enormous challenge uh, in our states and in our country. Absolutely. Um, so, so that's how I would answer, answer that. So it's a really question of how do we, how do we um, um, move towards making sure that everybody, all kids, receive what they're legally entitled to. And we can talk a little bit more about that, but legally entitled, entitled to receive, but also what they have to basically have in order to succeed in life, which is uh, access to high quality educational opportunities. Um, and that means attending schools that are well-resourced, that are um, capable of delivering rigorous curriculum uh, and preparing them for uh, college and, and career. So I think one of the ways that I have heard this discussed in the past seems to be, um, I guess, sort of through one of two lenses, either through uh, an opportunity gap lens or through an achievement gap lens. And it sounds like what you were just describing is that your, your lens probably leans more towards that opportunity gap um, side of things. Um, but just wanted to, to see if, if you had any particular thoughts on what is the lens that we should be looking at this through? Well, it's, it's, it's both, but it has to start out with the opportunity. If you don't have the opportunity, you can't achieve. And so much of the conversation about education reform, um, the problems with schools in the, in the United States, um, failing public schools, all of these discussions really sort of skip past the issue of are these schools foundationally uh, built uh, from the ground up to deliver, to, to provide the opportunity that kids need to do what? To, in, the, in today's uh, education world, to achieve this uh, academic standards that, uh, that uh, the states are prescribing that they meet uh, and, and standards that they obviously need in order to, to succeed and move on. Um, so it's, you know, it's like a house. If the foundation is crumbling, you're not going to, you know, it's going to fall down. So uh, the, the, the issue of education, educational opportunity, making sure that, that there, which means making sure that there are all of the essential resources that are needed and deployed in schools um, to, to uh, give kids that opportunity are there. Um, 
that's, that's really the first step. If we don't pay attention to that and we just focus on test score results or outcome measures, we're not really gonna make the kind of, we're not gonna break down the systemic barriers by socioeconomics, race, and others that, that affect our schools and really move towards that goal of educational justice, which is giving all kids that opportunity. They're connected, obviously. Um, you know, if you have the opportunity, then we have to work hard at making sure that ch children achieve. But so often today, the conversation about education moves right past that question and uh, focuses in on outcome results when the schools that these children are attending simply aren't 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 uh, uh, staffed and resourced and and set up to 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 to, to kind of deliver the the resource the uh, the opportunities that they need to actually do well in school. Well, and so I was intrigued in doing my research for our conversation today about um, the early history of, yeah, of ELC um, and that it started in the early 1970s to really address the funding differences between urban schools and the suburban schools. And I think this gets a little bit into what you alluded to in your intro with there are certain things that students are entitled to legally. And I would love for you to give us that, that understanding. So the, the obvious, um, the obvious um, grounding of all of the conversation about education and legal rights to education is with the states. And so often we skip right, like we skip right over to achievement, we skip right past the states. It's so important to understand that uh, the United States has no national system of education. We have no national right to education in our US constitution. And the right to educate, but well, we do have a right to education, uh, an affirmative obligation to provide education to all of our children, but they're embedded in all 50 state constitutions. So the way to think about public education is that it's the probably one public, only public service that has an affirmative constitutional obligation behind it. It has to be maintained and provided, but it's also a state's right and responsibility. So the way to think about public education in the US and to think about the right to education is we have 50 state systems, uh, 50 state constitutions that have the right, guarantee the right to education. And the responsibility to provide education rests with the states. And that goes back to ELC's founding <clears throat> in 1973. The reason uh, ELC came about was that was because of the Rodriguez decision. Um, the Rodriguez decision in the US Supreme Court, Rodriguez versus uh, Texas, uh, which dealt with the San Antonio School District, that decision uh, in a, in a uh, you know, really probably is the most profound, had the most profound impact on public education of any decision. And essentially that decision sort of, um, uh, the state, the federal, uh, wrote the federal courts and the federal government, the federal constitution out of the equation and essentially said that the responsibility for dealing with state uh, education, whether it's adequate funding, adequate resources, um, you know, programs, preschool, whatever you wanna, the condition of school buildings, all of that really rests with the states. And so um, since the Rodriguez decision, uh, the, the federal, essentially the federal uh, courthouse doors are closed to challenges to state policies, which create inequities and inadequacies. And so ELC was formed because there were folks in the foundation world and the advocacy world 
that said, well, we have to take on the states. We tried to get the federal courts involved in looking at the funding disparities in Texas, which frankly still exist today, more than 40 years later. Um, and we have to really focus on the states and enforcing those state constitutional rights and state courts. And so we were, um, ELC was given a grant from the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation back then funded a lot of uh, state-based efforts. The founder of ELC actually had the foresight to know that um, he should create an organization because this is gonna be a long haul. And so ELC was born out of that. And ever, and ever since then, our focus really has been on enforcing the right to education, primarily the right that all children have in their states. So if you're a, a child in New York, you're entitled to what is called a sound basic education under the New York Constitution. If you're in New Jersey, you're entitled to a thorough and efficient education, which is the language of the, uh, the New Jersey Constitution. The constitutional provisions vary. Um, most of them go back to the late 1800s. Uh, some of them are more modernized through constitutional conventions in the states and are stronger. Um, so there's the, the language varies. And also the role of the courts in each state has, has varied over the, over the years. Um, but back to ELC, our, our core mission has really been focused on the states. We strongly uh, push, the, uh, push the, uh, um, the reality that um, the responsibility for educating our children rests with the states. It primarily rests with state elected officials, with state legislatures and governors. And frankly, that's where all the action is. They control all the money. They control how schools are governed. They control whether your buildings are falling down or are in good shape. They control whether you have access to preschool or not. All of these things are really determined um, in state capitals by state legislatures and governors. And I really believe, I've come to believe after 25, 26 years of doing this work that we, it, you know, the public really doesn't have an understanding of that. We tend to talk about US public schools or US public education when there is no US public education system. And when, the, when you pick up the media every day, pick up the New York Times or pick up any newspaper, what you're gonna read about are school districts or schools or charter schools. Most of the coverage of education goes right past the, the one uh, governmental entity that's legally responsible for education and that's the states. So, um, uh, that's where we have to focus our, in my view, um, I don't think there are people who talk about, uh, I've been in many conferences and meetings where a lot of advocates and lawyers and very smart people get up and say, well, it's time to, to go back to the federal court to try to overturn Rodriguez, or it's time to get uh, the federal constitution amended so that there's a right to education in the U.S. constitution. Um, you know, frankly, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And so what we need to do is turn our attention to the folks that are responsible for educating our children. And that is lawmakers and state legislatures and governors and state capitals. Okay. And that makes sense. I, you know, I think I, for me, I also wonder, you know, is the state level, although from an administrative standpoint, I don't think you'd want to get smaller. Um, but I feel like you know, most of the power within the individual school districts or at that level is at that more local level that the, you know, most of the decisions that are impacting, whether it's the funding or the curriculum or what have you are actually done even at that more micro level 
than at, than at the state level. Is my impression of that correct? I would push back on that and ask you, Kristen, to think, rethink that and your listeners to rethink that assumption. So when you think about state systems and the state responsibility, so essentially what these constitutional provisions say at the end of the day is state legislatures and, and governors, but state legislatures in particular, are obligated to maintain and support a system of free public schools available to all children resident in that state. That's essentially the obligation. All of the policies that affect local school districts, in fact, even the creation of local school districts is a matter of policies that are decided in the state capital, in the state legislature. So when you think about districts, they're creatures of the state, they're legal constructs of the state. They were set up, you can go to any state, go to the New York law books and what you'll find is a statute that creates school districts. Recently, legislators have, have uh, in the last 20 years, um, created charter schools. Where do charter schools come from? Charter schools are essentially a alternate means of governance. Well, let me say it this way. Charter schools are like districts, uh, a, a, a governance structure established by the state to deliver on its responsibility to educate kids locally. So charter schools, vocational schools, you know, uh, uh, regional schools, school districts, these are legal constructs of the state that are there to carry out the state's obligation. And all of the policies that really get to this question of opportunity uh -huh. in local school districts and schools emanate with the state. And the biggest one is money. Um, all of the money, uh, we in one of the court rulings in our big school finance case in New Jersey that we've been litigating for years called Abbott versus Burke. This goes back to 1990. Our Supreme Court has said that all money for public education in our state is state money in the sense that it's controlled by the state. So what that means is that the amount of state aid that you might get, a school district may get off of state revenue, state taxes, income taxes, so forth, sales taxes, so forth and so on. And the amount of money you can raise off the local property tax is determined by the state legislature. Um, so the money that the district has in its budget is a policy decision that was made in Albany or Trenton or Harrisburg, uh, you know, take your pick. And so until we come to grips with that, uh, now, does the district have roles to play that were delegated to them by the state in the way the funding is used, is allocated, making sure that it's effectively and efficiently used? Of course they do, but it's also the state's obligation that their districts perform well too. So the state has the overarching responsibility to make sure that the whole system works. And that's a kind of very fundamental legal and policy and advocacy and, and, and principle that I don't think Americans understand. I don't think lawmakers tend to understand, appreciate it. A lot of legislatures are, legislators are themselves even blind to the responsibility they have. Parents don't understand it. Um, uh, folks in uh, the Beltway down in Washington really don't understand that. And so my own view, Kristen, is that we have to come to terms with the fact that the state is the state is the state when it comes to education. And that if a district doesn't have sufficient funding to meet the needs of its school children, 
uh, particularly districts that are serving high concentrations of low-income children, children of color, uh, kids who are, you know, have special needs, it really flows back to the state's failure to put in place a finance system that govern finance regime that governs the whole system that makes sure kids what they have. And so ELC's work has really been to push that issue forward. And the good news is I think that in the last couple of years, there's beginning to be a shift in that direction. I think that um, uh, there, you know, I think there was a long period where we hoped that the federal government was going to come in and save the day on education. And I can tell you, Kristen, that it's not. Uh, Congress is not prepared to, there are things that Congress should do that would really help. We can talk about those. There's no question that federal policy needs to be reformed. President Biden is putting out some really important reforms for the first time. The federal government can do a good job in its policy, but doing a good job at what? <laughs> not providing education to kids, but pressing the states, using the federal dollars as leverage to essentially force the states to do a better job for their kids. Okay, no, that's an interesting thought. So you mentioned Abbott, the Abbott case, um, and you know, if uh, the regular uh, uh, people who tune into our program know anything is that the law moves very slowly. We have this conversation all of the time. Um, and I think you mentioned, you know, Abbott was litigated in 1990, um, and obviously the litigation started earlier than that, but the, the Supreme Court decision you mentioned, um, 1990, and it is something you are still working on the implementation of. And I wanna say, I think you're at Abbott in the 20s now or something along that line. <laughs> 23. 23, okay. Um, in terms of of how how that how the that decision is being implemented and moved forward. And so I'm I'm curious, you know, are the are the issues that we have been talking about, actually, let's go back to 1990 with the Abbott decision, are the issues the same? Are they becoming more nuanced? Is it um, that, you know, we advance this far down the road and then run into a challenge or interpretation and either go back or pause and then trying to drive it forward? I'm just curious as to what is this trajectory? Well, that's a great question, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, issues in there that sort of need to be unpacked, I guess, a little bit. <clears throat> and so I'll I'll try to try to wade in. Um, I go back to the state legislate elected state officials, and so my thinking about this has changed a lot. We um, and and. I've come to realize that the issue of uh, advancing educational equity and justice in state, in, in you know, uh, uh, the state's responsibility to provide that is requires, is essentially a political process. So it's, it's and it's, and it's in the politics and state legislatures. Um, so the states that have done well, kind of move the ball forward in the last say 20, 30 years, and we do have really good examples of that, are states where there's been strong political movements in state legislatures, leadership by governors to make some very hard decisions about uh, increasing taxes, allocating state revenue, um, especially to communities that may not be politically powerful in the legislature, um, uh, so forth, uh, you know, so forth and so on, a whole host of difficult issues that they've 
made. So litigation, so I say that to say that litigation um, is, needs to be this kind of litigation, school, uh, suing states to get more funding and all of that, which has happened in virtually all the states. And there's litigation going on now in 10, 12 states as I speak. So, and it's episodic. Um, the litigation uh, is, is, needs to be seen as a tool, in other words, a component of what needs to be a broader political strategy that um, is uh, holding legislators to account from year to year for, uh, uh, for the education of children. So we um, have to, and we're starting really doing a lot of work on this. And I think uh, a lot of philanthropy is moving in this direction to understand that we have to build strong, sustained political campaigns. And I mean that with a small p, not by, I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat because you know, frankly, in my experience, you have to fight with both parties over this stuff. Um, but you have to build this uh, uh, capacity to uh, uh, advocacy capacity that it, uh, brings together educators, administrators, school people, teacher unions, teachers, parents, civil rights groups around an agenda of um, pressing for improvements in 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 the in in the financing and the operations of the state system in the state capital. Litigation like Abbott has played a role in that because in, uh, 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 if, you're, if you're lucky enough to have a Supreme Court that's willing to wade in, and in many states we do, in some states we don't, that uh, and to push the issue, essentially what they're doing in the Abbott litigation or whether it's the campaign for fiscal equity litigation in New York um, litigation that's going on right now in New York. Uh, there's a case in North Carolina that's been going on for 20 years that's, that's heating up right now called Leandro versus North Carolina. Uh, Kansas, Washington, places like that. New Mexico has a case that's, you know, the judges are pushing. What the judges are really doing the, in their orders is they're saying, legislature, governor, you have to respond to this. So they're putting pressure from the courts, leverage on the courts for a political response. The other way to say this is that even if you win in court, which has happened in New York, happened in New Jersey and a number of other states, it all goes back to the legislature because at the end of the day, it primarily involves legislators having to make the tough political decisions to, to, uh, to increase revenue for, for education and to drive that revenue to where it's needed the most. And those are typically uh, uh, communities that are racially and socioeconomically segregated. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I think it's kind of a bit of a long answer. So with Abbott, we've used the courts at times along the way uh, to, in the Abbott case. And we've been have fortunate to be able to keep the court engaged over all these years. In some states, you have to bring a second case, like in New York. We had the campaign for fiscal equity case. Now we have two cases that are going on in the New York courts right now the follow-up. Kansas has had several rounds of litigation, so forth and so on. Um, but what essentially we're trying to do is get the, uh, get the courts engaged at strategic and timely moments in order to uh, power up, if you will, the political campaigns in the state capital to get the job done. So that should mean that, that to your listeners is that the place to look, if you want to work on educational injustice and educational equity, and if you're concerned about that, 
focus on your state Fo and focus on the most states have um, political campaigns for school finance reform or expanding preschool or addressing the poor condition of school buildings. They're going on. We need to do a whole lot more to get folks engaged in, um, in that. The last thing I will say is that when you think about it that way, you can understand better the condition of uh, education in the United States. And the way I uh, see it is that we have some states that are very high performing overall and actually perform among the, um, uh, uh, you know, um, competitive and comparable to the highest performing nations in the world. They're states. So they're Massachusetts, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Maryland, places like that, that really have moved the ball forward. And those states are states where the courts have tend to be involved, but also where legislatures and governors over a successive period of decades have made in key investments in their educational system over time. On the other hand, we have states and whole regions of the country which are dragging the United States down, education. And so the Southwest, the Southwest states, states like Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Nevada, the Southern states, these are all states, if you look at them individually, they're states with deep disinvestment in public education, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, these are states also that have significant numbers of students who have come to school with additional needs from poverty, from disability, from the need to learn English in school. And the resources and the opportunities aren't there in these schools because the state legislatures are not are 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 engaged. What I would you know you know some of them they're just not they're not responding. They're disinvesting in their they're not keeping up with their investments. They're not stepping up to the plate. And so if we start to look at education from that perspective, we can I think um, put the focus where where it needs to be. So it feels as if for most of the issues with regard to schools, and I'm going to, you know, and again, doing my research for our topic, for our talk today, um, you know, if we're, regardless of whether we're talking about school facilities or safety or special education, the other side to all of those coins feels like it's the funding. Um, and is that, is that sort of the right way to think about it in terms of, uh, we need to figure out the money side of it. Maybe not before, because I, you know, I don't think we want to do these things in seriatim. We want to try to make them as parallel as possible. Um, you know, is it that we? But do we really need to figure out the funding mechanisms or the 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 money side of things before we can really advance the ball on other education related topics? You know, I, I look. I think that the number one. Um, obstacle to education justice. And um, well, I'll, I'm going to give you two. I'll give you three. <laughs> and they all really rest with the state. Um, there are three obstacles in our state. It, you know, if you're in a state where the educational system is really not performing well, um, uh, and if you're in one that's performing pretty good but needs to do better, there's three real issues that, that, that are on the table. One is the funding system. So when you think about 
the state can, as I said, the state's funding, all states have these funding formulas, these funding, funding mechanisms that determine the amount of state and local money that's gonna be available to educate our children. Federal government puts about 10% of the dollars into education. It's a small amount. And the federal government will put their money into a state no matter what this, how bad, how well, or how, or how inequitable or how equitable a state financing system might be. It's, they're sort of agnostic, there's blinders in federal policy on that. Um, so we have financing systems in so many of our states that really aren't built for what we expect them to do today. These are, these are old antiquated financing systems that have been set up maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, sometimes even 30 or 40 years ago. And they're just, they're not built around the core issue that a finance system has to be built around, which is what's the cost of educating all of our children? And there are two parts to that. One is what's the cost of making sure that all kids have the resources they need to achieve? And secondly, what are the, the cost of the additional resources that schools have to have in order to educate low-income children, students with disabilities, kids who need to learn English because those kids need more. They need more programs, they need more interventions and they cost more. So we don't have financing systems in most states. There are a few outliers that have really you know, made a lot of progress. We know how to do it, but most of these financing systems are basically what politicians wanna spend from year to year. It's usually what they spent last year. Sometimes they cut, sometimes they maybe add a little more but it has no relationship to the actual cost of educating the kids in their states and particularly the poor kids in their states. So we've done a, a, a the United States has kind of, the states have, uh, the federal government has pushed this over the last 20 years. We've been in the area of standards-based reform, which is okay, states, you have to define what the curriculum is, what all kids should know and learn. You've got to set up these assessment systems to see whether they're learning. And you also have to have these accountability systems that determine whether schools and districts are, and even teachers sometimes are doing their job. What's missing in that, what never was put into that was what you called in the beginning, Kristen, opportunity, the opportunity to learn, the resources, the funding. We don't have financing systems in the states, most states that are built to deliver the uh, they're built around the cost of the resources that are essential to give kids that opportunity. So the number one job in most states is school finance reform. And that means that what we need are political campaigns to change that. I just will say one other thing. Those campaigns have to go on from year to year because even if you get a good financing formula, like we have in New Jersey or New York, uh, has a decent one, it needs to be fixed, but it's not bad, Maryland. Kansas, even if you have a halfway decent formula, it has to be funded in the state budget every year. So you have to have these political campaigns that are going to Albany every year, demanding that the money be put in. Even if uh, uh, we have formulas that are what we call underfunded formulas, they, you know, many of them, Illinois has one now, big gaps because the formula says, it's not a bad formula. They said districts should be getting X, but the legislature is only begin giving them law. And so, so that's number one. Number two is preschool. I'm a big believer that all, we are not going to uh, get to educational justice for, for um, 
for um, uh, students in poverty, students of color, uh, students that are marginalized, um, until we get all children in our states in a well-planned, high-quality preschool program starting at age three. All the European nations do it. If you live in France, you go to school starting at three. It is essential that we begin in the United States to, in our states and across the country to recognize that we've got to do that. Without doing that, kids are gonna to continue to come to kindergarten already behind. And so we have to have um, early education systems that are high powered and linked to K-12 and that are making sure that kids are education ready when they start kindergarten. And the third thing is a condition of our school buildings, which we often don't talk a lot about. You know, we have 11 states, I think it's 11 states or 11 or 12 states that provide no support money to local school districts for school building replacement and improvements. What does that mean? It means the only way you can replace an antiquated school or fix a school that needs major repair, or even as we're talking now in the pandemic, dealing with HVAC, heating and cooling, making schools ready to reopen, is through local money and usually through local, uh, the local taxpayers having to decide to approve a bond and tax themselves. That is at the core condition of the deplorable condition of so many school buildings around the country. And until this is where the federal, this is where um, uh, the federal government could really step up. We've had no real big infrastructure initiative that's focused on making this, pushing the states to um, 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 address this. Many states, as I said, are doing almost nothing about this, and it just continues on and on. We have to make sure that that right to education in the states, that a component of that, is the right to attend a school that is safe, not overcrowded, and edu educationally adequate to deliver the kind of program that we expect our kids to have. And that's the third big thing. So sort of these three buckets of opportunity uh, resources, if you will, funding so that the money is there to pay the teachers, to hire the counselors, the nurses, to deal with school safety, uh, to make sure that uh, we have programs in place that prevent discipline, kids being suspended or expelled. You can go on down the line. Kids that are trauma, kids that need extra help, that there's counselors, social workers available, so forth and so on. The money has to be there for that. Second thing is early education. And the third thing is making sure that when you go to school every day, you get to go to school in a, in a building that's, uh, that's, uh, that's safe and conducive to learning. Um, and, in so, and, and, in all, and in all three of those issues, the primary feature of the American educational landscape in our states is disparity, disparity, disparity. Wealthier districts can tax themselves under these systems to do more. They have nice buildings, great curriculum. They raise the property taxes alongside communities that simply aren't able to do that. And that's the responsibility of the states to address. Well, and you mentioned as part of this, um, you think that the expansion to pre-K um, is something that is critical for our educational system. And that is one of the uh, proposals that the Biden administration has recently made. Um, I think over the last several years, 
the entire country has gotten a little leery of proclamations or um, suggestions from Washington DC as to how education should go or should work. But this seems like a particular proposal that you are adamantly in favor of. Well, you know, I actually think, um, you know, when President Obama came in in 2008, some of us were really pushing him to take on pre-K. There was a real opportunity then. You know, a lot of Republican states, uh, it's, one, it's, one, it's one program that has actually sort of bipartisan support out in the states. Uh, you know, Oklahoma, which has terrible school funding, very, un, it's, it's K-12 schools are seriously underfunded. Um, has a pretty decent uh, investment in early education. So, um, you know, when, when President Obama was there, he didn't, he decided not, he went off in a different direction and I think missed the opportunity. I think uh, President Biden is now pushing it and, um, and uh, you know, including it in his, um, in, in his proposals. Here's the challenge, the way I would, here's another way to think of the challenge with the federal government, what we need to start thinking about doing in our states is on pre-K is what we've done in New Jersey because the court ordered it. We have to unify uh, into a coherent system of high quality early education, well-staffed, certified teachers, small classes, all of it, um, uh, of, the, uh, for the, for the, of the system that the kids are in. So right now, many, many kids are in childcare centers, federal Head Start and public school classrooms. They're completely disconnected. The quality is totally different. They're generally underfunded. They don't have the resources to do what needs to be done. So what we've been able to do in New Jersey with the Abbott program is to unify those three strands, bring them together around a set of high quality standards administered in, by the education department and with the resources and funding necessary to build a unified high powered program that's available for all kids. So what the federal government I think needs to do is to really come to grips with that. We are, we spend a lot of money on childcare for three and four year olds, a lot of money on federal money, state money, a lot of money on Head Start. Public, there's a lot of money for public schools. What we need to step back and think about is how do we build strong systems of the delivery of early education linked to K-12 that unifies all three of them. I think that uh, the Biden administration wants to go in that direction. That's a heavy lift. Um, and I think uh, all of us need to support that. That would be really helpful if the federal government weighed in and started to move the states. It's gonna take a long time, but started to move the states using their money as leverage in that direction. One thing I wanna to talk to you about, David, because we are talking to Raymond Pierce later on this month as, a, as another uh, aspect of the education uh, justice conversation is, and I think that they're involved in this campaign, um, but the public funds, public schools campaign, um, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so would love for you to talk a little bit about that campaign. Yeah, so um, public funds, public schools is a, is a campaign that we started, ELC and Southern Poverty together, um, Southern Education Foundation, a lot of, a lot of organizations have supported. So, the issue there is vouchers. So we need to talk a little bit about vouchers. Um, uh, there's been a, a, a real surge in, um, in many states to divert scarce public tax dollars to private education. 
in the form of voucher, various types of voucher programs. It's growing. Uh, Florida is now diverting about $1 billion in tax payer dollars to private schools. Those, uh, when they do that, they often do not essentially regulate those private schools and they're free to discriminate. So they're sort of unaccountable, unregulated, able to discriminate outside the public school system, but significant amounts of, in some states, growing um, um, uh, tax dollars that are being diverted to, to private education. Public funds, public schools, we decided to do it because somebody needed to stand up and say, wait a minute. In so many of these states, the public school system is already deeply and severely underfunded. The last thing these, and the state has a constitutional legal obligation not to, there's no constitutional right to go to a private school. If you want to send your kid to a private school, you can do that. But there's no constitutional obligation to provide education through private schools. There is a constitutional obligation to provide everybody with free public school. So what we've tried to do with public funds, public schools is elevate this, the spread of vouchers, the growth of vouchers as a diversion of scarce tax dollars that take away money that really needs to be invested in already underfunded public schools. So that's basically the heart of the campaign. Um, we're doing it through a variety of means, again, through helping advocates in states oppose voucher bills um, or expansion of voucher programs. Uh, we've uh, litigated in some states where we can do that. Uh, research, we're doing a lot of, uh, we've got commissioned a lot of research to show that these programs really don't help kids. Um, so the sort of flip side of school finance, right, the crazy thing about fighting for school funding now is you have to have a, an offense, which is getting the legislatures to put more money in, but you also have to have a defense, which is to make sure they're not taking it out the back door uh, and diverting it off to uh, unregulated, un unaccountable private schools that are free to discriminate. Got it, okay. There was one other um, area I, as I was doing my research that I thought was particularly interesting and I feel as if um, probably has become a, more prominently to awareness in the last few years. And that's, and I, I think I would loosely lump this under some of those safety um, uh, conversations that we were having earlier, but it's about the education rights of uh, children who might be homeless. Uh, or undocumented. And my recollection from you know, my public school days was I lived in a certain area, therefore I went to these schools. How, how does this work for children who are homeless? Um, or or what, is this becoming a more focused conversation of how do we address the education rights of these students? Well, let me back up a little bit and answer that, make a point that I think is important to, to understand about uh, public education in our states. Um, not only is there no national right to education, a national system of education, there's 50 states, but also unlike other countries in the world, we have a very um, uh, weak social safety net for kids. It's, you know, President Biden is really you know, when you think about as bold as proposals, they're really on the child welfare side. Those have an educational benefit, and, uh, and here's why. The problem we have in a lot of communities is that um, these are, uh, or school districts, 
um, is that they are racially and, and socioeconomically segregated. They're, they're serving neighborhoods that have significant concentrations of low-income kids, uh, kids who are homeless, uh, kids who are undocumented, so forth and so on, need to learn English in school. And they come to school with a lot of needs because there isn't the kind of social safety net that you would find in, say, the Netherlands. If you have a housing problem in the Netherlands, you can, you know, there's a place you can go and they'll deal with it. Um, the schools have to deal with all of these collateral problems. I think it's just so important to understand that. And that puts a heavy load on teachers, by the way, and principals, because, you know, if you work in these schools, um, if you're a principal, what, what is your main job? You're the instructional leader of the school. If you're a teacher, your main job is to deliver the curriculum and the instructional program in a high quality way. Oftentimes in these schools, because they're under-resourced and because the community um, needs are so great when the kid that they bring to, that the kids bring to school, they're diverted from that to dealing with all kinds of other problems, you know, from medical problems to healthcare problems, to emotional problems, trauma, so forth. It, it takes away from the whole enterprise. So I just want to make that point that so when you're thinking about kids like homeless kids or kids in foster care or kids who are undocumented, um, you know, you're, we have to make sure that we understand that uh, uh, what we're asking schools to do. Um, we have to connect schools to community. We have to make sure that schools are much more connected to the resources that are available in their communities to deal with these problems. And then we have to make sure that when the kids get to school, there's sufficient supports to address their problems when they get there. So, you know, with homeless, homelessness, it's a huge problem. It's a problem making sure that there's outreach to get the kids into school. Um, if they're moving around from school to school, that's a problem because, you know, you have to track the kids and make sure that the kids, you know, that uh, if the kids are uh, leaving one classroom and going to another, that they're the continuous pro. There's a whole set of issues that come to play that require resources, talent, and expertise. There's no easy solution to that. There are legal rights that homeless kids have. I mean, they have the right to, to go to school and we have an obligation to educate them. But it really gets to this broader question that I'm trying to bring up is when you think about funding and resources for, for education, are we, make, are we providing all the additional supports either directly or through community resources that are needed to make sure that kids with these different types of needs, including kids who may be living in a shelter, kids who are moving around from place to place, kids who are in foster care, we know where they are, we know what their needs are, and we have the resources either within the school or in the community deployed to meet those needs. It's a heavy challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, perhaps some of us forget sometimes that schools are no longer strictly about educating. It's, you know, are, are they feeding the students? Are they providing after school care? Are they, um, you know, as you said, supplementing perhaps other things that are missing in their life in, in some way? And that's, um, it is great to take that more holistic view of everything that schools do. But to your point, I think it sounds as also if they're not they're not being funded as if they are those kinds of centers. They are being funded as if there's a teacher and there are students and and that's about it. Yeah, there's a there's a core legal constitutional principle uh, when in the Abbott case, uh, there's a lot of lot, a lot of really important uh, aspects to that to those rulings. But one of them that's the most important is our Supreme Court said that the right to a thorough and efficient education, if you're in a poor if you're in a poor urban community, if you're in a 
a uh, they were talking more about cities, but it could be rural, it could be inner suburban, it doesn't really matter. If you're in a poor, if you're a poor kid in a poor, poor community, you need more than kids who are in affluent communities. We have it backwards in this country, right? Uh, the kids that are most advantaged and get the most resources from their families, from their communities, have the most resources at school. Um, the kids who need the resources the most have, have less. And so I think the notion of the right to education has to include the right of children who are vulnerable because of poverty, because of disability, because of you know, the conditions that we've been talking about, um, to have an education that includes the resources that are necessary to give them the additional help they need to succeed. If, they, if that help, and, that, and some of that help is non-academic, it's social supports, it's guidance counselors, it's social workers, it's having access to psychologists. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the schools actually have to fund it or provide it. Those resources could be in the community, but they must be connected and available. So that's a really important um, notion that I think we just kind of move past to when we start to talk about the achievement gap. Oh, let's just look at the test scores. What's behind those test scores? What are the are the schools really equipped to deal with the kids who are at the lower end uh, of, of the performance, you know, measures or whatever that's being so you raise a really good point, and it's it's one that I think that I don't think we do a good enough job of really educating the public at large about the significant challenge that school public schools that are serving uh, high poverty communities or communities that are racially or socioeconomically isolated, so forth and so on, or have high concentrations of kids who are mobile, who are homeless, whatever it is, um, how, how, uh, uh, how difficult the challenge is to educate those kids and really making sure that the schools have all that they need to do that. Gets back to that racial justice question. Well, and so, you know, one of the, I think one of the last topics I wanna cover with you is part of the CARES Act and the America Rescue Plan um, there's a fair amount of influx of monies um, to support schools as they reopen, um, as they're trying to address um, perhaps some of these challenges. I'm, I'm suspecting more like along the lines of like the, the, uh, the internet connections or, or things along that right. line. Um, but, uh, but, you know, what would be your hope for the impact on uh, the state, since I'm assuming ultimately that's sort of the the master purse controller of these funds coming into the state, um, to how they're going to use these monies to address some of these challenges or some of these concerns. So I, I think one thing to keep in mind, though, about the federal money, it sounds like a lot, but we put out a report just recently, in, I think in January, about the amount of money that um, was lost in the decade from 2009 to 2018, after the Great Recession, when the Great Recession hit, states cut their education budgets. What we looked at was whether states had, had put the money back, in other words, reinvested in education. What we found was that as a result of the Great Depression and the failure to reinvest, by 2018, states had collectively lost $600 billion in revenue for the schools, basically, wow. lost $600 billion across the states and you go down each state and you can gauge that. So we're coming out of the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, we were in a period of, you know, not even beginning to come out of a, of a decade of deep disinvestment in public education. So I just think 
keep the dollars in mind. Yeah, no, that's now, that said, the federal money is very helpful. I think if we look at it as what Congress intended it for, which is to provide schools with resources over the next two, three, four years to deal with the impacts of the pandemic on kids. So what schools and districts need to do is really spend that money very carefully on the kinds of things that, um, uh, that impacted um, students and their schools in the pandemic. And the, the biggest ones are learning loss or learning delay, I should say, the, 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 the hundreds and the millions of kids who now are gonna be coming back into school in September having experienced significant delays in learning because they were you know, offline or they weren't connected, or even if they weren't connected, um, they lost a lot of ground. So the primary focus, I think, of all that money has to go into bringing in a lot of extra resources on a, on a, on a fast track basis over the next two to three years to make sure that we kind of repair the damage, if you will, or bring those kids, get those kids back academically on track, particularly tough. And some groups of kids are really um, um, affected by that, like kids with disabilities. The other thing is um, you can use the money for building improvements. So we've been urging districts to fix your, you, know, you if you don't have a heating and if, if, if your system, if your school has no cooling, air conditioning, um, and in the Northeast, we know how many days are going above 80 now anyway, um, HVAC, these sort of things, a new roof, um, use the money for that. That's, uh, that's something that will have long-term dividends. Um, you know, and you know, make sure that the digital divide, as we've called it, is closed. Try to use those resources for that. So there's a host of things related to the pandemic that they need to spend that money on and spend it wisely. And why do I say that? The fundamental thing about this federal money to understand is it's one-time money. So when it's spent, it's gone. It's not coming back. It's not like formula funding, you know, your year-to-year -year formula funding. So you have to make sure that you don't put yourself in a position where you're making the kinds of investments that require sustained funding over time. You're aware of that. You're making these short-term investments in the kinds of resources that you need to get through the pan pandemic. And the last thing I'll say about this is that uh, we shouldn't allow this federal funding to take our eye off the fact that the school finance systems in so many states remain deeply broken, underfunded, inadequate, inequitable, unjust, unfair, take whatever term you want. Um, that has to be, we have to not get distracted um, by the mission of reforming and improving all of these finance systems that are not serving our kids today. Because when the federal money is gone, we're gonna be back to those same old broken, lousy systems of public school finance that really aren't up to the job uh, uh, of educating our kids today. All right, it is time for our lightning round. And there's a series of questions I ask each of our guests, um, just sort of, you know, quick hit kind of, of answers. Um, so the first question is, what do you wish people were paying more attention to? States. Okay. State, the other states are state governors. What are their educational platform and policy? Is it pro-public school, pro-equity, pro-justice? Okay. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? Oh, um, that, I, well, that's a hard one. I, I, 
I'd say in the short, I say immediate is, is making sure that schools can reopen safely. I mean, safely mm -hmm. in the pandemic and that their uh, that districts, you know, and that states and districts get their act together to make sure that they've got the resources in those schools to deal with the extraordinary needs of the students that they're going to face. Okay. What gives you hope that progress will be made? Uh, you know, I, I, I think that the conversation, the, the focus of, of the Biden administration's education policy, now there's a which I think understands the dynamic that federal policy is there to push the states to do a better job, whether it's on funding, resources, pre-K buildings, um, gives me hope. We're finally, I think, beginning to understand the proper role of the federal government in our 50 state public educational framework. Who else is doing good work to make progress on education justice or to close the education equity gaps? Uh, lots of people. I mean, there's hard to really, you know, there's, uh, I think the really, I, here's what I'll lift up. I lift up the work that's going on by, um, there's a networks, there's a, a, a network called the Partnership for Educational Equity and Rights and a, and a, and a group of funders and foundations that have come together called the Resource Equity Funding Collaborative. And they're all basically focused on how do we build these strong political campaigns in our states that are pro-public education, pro-public school reform, want to fix the broken funding formulas, want to hold legislators accountable for performance. So those folks that are out in the states, and there are many, many, many groups, we work with them day in, day out. I can't name, I would couldn't even begin to name them all. I'm lifting all of them up because that's the hard work. The hard work really is in the states and in the state capitals. And there, and a lot of folks are doing that right now. Okay. And the final thing is we like to give our audience um, some suggestions of things they should be reading or podcasts they should be listening to or people who are thinking thoughts on these issues. So do you have any recommendations there? I'm going to give one of ours because I think it's... Uh, so important right now. We did a report that actually the Gates Foundation funded it was a year-long study of successful uh, school finance reforms in states, in four states. We looked at Kansas, Washington State, uh, Massachusetts, and New Jersey over a period of 20, 30 years. It's called uh, From Courthouse to Statehouse and Back Again. You can get it on our website. I would urge everybody to read it. It really kind of lays out um, a lot of what I was trying to, what I'm trying to say here, I think it has the, it really talks to us about what we need to do to get our states to be, uh, to really step up to the plate and fulfill the legal obligations that they have to our children and achieve educational justice. So that's, uh, that's a piece that I would, would, um, would, would strongly recommend. Um, and I think I, <laughs> I think I'll leave it at that. Okay, that's perfect. Right. I, I guess the other thing I would, the last report, we, we do an annual report card on school funding, the condition of school funding in the states called Making the Grade uh, is how fair is school funding in your state. It's very simple to read, very easy. You don't have to be a school finance expert to read it. Um, take a look at that as well. I think those are two good resources that'll give you a sense of the sort of magnitude of the problems that we face and where the challenges lie. 
Perfect. Thank you. So I'd like to thank our audience for joining us for tea today. A couple of upcoming program notes so you can mark your calendars. Please join us for tea in two weeks on June 24th. We will be continuing our exploration of equity gaps and education justice uh, with Raymond Pierce, who is the president of the uh, Southern Education Foundation. And also on June 24th, that Thursday is particularly busy for us at 7 p.m. Uh, we are doing a program in partnership with the Roger Tory Peterson Institute, and we'll be hosting a panel discussion on environmental law that is part of RTPI's Art That Matters project. And this particular discussion is tied to an exhibit they just opened yesterday called The Art of the Osprey. So um, that program is free. It does require pre-registration on um, Roger Tory Peterson's website. That's rtpi.org. Um, and we hope to see you all there. And David, thank you so very much for joining me for tea today. Pleasure. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.